You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. Hello, this is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and this episode was going to be uh, quite different when I had originally planned it, but obviously uh, events have intervened. The passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, towering figure in American law, fierce advocate for women's rights, progress in society, a critical figure as, as passed. And her life is about so much more than what the next six weeks will look like about who will fill her seat. This podcast, though, is the Faith 2020 podcast. I will leave it to others more equipped than I to offer tributes to Justice Ginsburg and walk through uh, her legacy. And I would urge everyone, whether you agree with her or not, to look at what she accomplished, to study some of her opinions, and to, to honor her as someone who dedicated her life to public service. What does lie ahead of us now is six weeks of a presidential campaign in which this is going to be a major feature and an impending confirmation battle. Now, I would urge you to listen to the Church Politics Podcast where my co-host Justin Gibney and I uh, discuss some of the history here, some of the ramifications for how this is going to shake out. I'm not going to cover all that territory here since we cover down the Church Politics Podcast. I am very excited that we have a, a guest, my a dear friend, a political philosopher, Sam Kimbriel, who is going to walk us through and who I have a great conversation with that tries to zoom out a bit and tries to take a look at what kind of system, <laughs> what kind of society on an accelerated basis produces these kinds of seeming sort of political crises. And so that's in this episode. I'm also thrilled that we have Adam Serwer, one of my favorite writers, incredible journalist, someone who's really shaped how this presidential cycle has shaped up, has shaped how um, we view the Trump administration as much as really anyone else. Uh, and Adam Serwer is on to talk about his recent essay for The Atlantic. And so I know you're going to love that conversation. This episode is a big one. There's a lot to cover. I hope you'll stick with it. There's so much, I think, helpful insight packed throughout. Uh, I'm just going to offer a few quick comments. Uh, we have a future episode with Senator Mark Pryor, uh, former Senator Mark Pryor of Arkansas that I'm very excited to share with you. I'll get more into so, sort of polling, state of play. I didn't think it was appropriate for this episode uh, because I do think we need to see how the Supreme Court news is going to sort of filter through the system. The basic overview there is that up until last week, Biden continu was continuing in a strong position. There were people trying to advance narratives of the race tightening. I didn't really see that in a way where I was identifying that the, the race had sort of changed trajectory in some way. We're going to have to reassess that now in, in the coming days. Let me make a few comments about Justice Ginsburg, the open seat now, what this means. I wrote on Substack my proposal for the way forward, which, to be clear, is not a likely proposal. It's more of a how do we get out of this mess proposal, this vicious cycle of a really nihilistic approach to these battles. Because I saw, as soon as the news dropped out, what developed and became clear to the public over the course of 24 hours, 48 hours, which is... Uh, Donald Trump was absolutely going to move forward with <laughs> with with naming 
someone to fill the seat. And Mitch McConnell was 100% going to say, uh, yes, we're going to process this thing. The big question in my mind was whether they would try to do it before the election or name someone and have that as sort of something to motivate turnout for the election. Although this can change, it looks like they're trying to rush this thing and do hearings and all that before the election. I'm interested to see how that plays out. I think there could be some changes there. But right now, what Republicans are saying in the Senate is they're going to try and move forward with Trump's nominee, who he intends to nominee this week, get them vetted, have the Judiciary Committee uh, vote, do hearings, all that before the election. So in about 40 days. Let me say two more things. So I, I, I wrote in my Substack the way forward, and you could go to reclaiminghope.substack.com. The basic idea is this. I think that there is an ethical case to make. I think there is a principled case to make that four Republican senators should step up and say, do you know what? We said something the last time. It's different this time. Uh, it, as a matter of integrity, we're not going to vote to support this justice. That should be advanced by whoever wins in November, just like the party said four years ago. I think there's a case you can make for that. I do think a lot of people suggesting that that was the directions Republicans should go were doing so out of wishful thinking. There's a lot of hypocrisy going on and hypocrisy should be called out. I also think a lot of the analysis on this has been basically one-sided. Like how could Republicans sort of do that? Like this is going to really set back progressive goals this is a big deal. Uh, you know, the stakes are so high. How could Republicans do this at, at such a moment without considering, like, the perspective of Republicans? And like, this is really important. They would not only have to say, Donald Trump, we're not voting for your nominee, but they'd essentially have to tell their voters that they prefer to have the next Supreme Court justice nominated by Joe Biden, that that's what they're supporting. I tend to think the issue is not going forward with this nomination. The issue is just the absolute deceit of four years ago not allowing Barack Obama to appoint his nominee to the bench. There's legitimacy to what Republicans are arguing now. It's only delegitimized because of the arguments that they made four years ago. That is what is disheartening. We have a unique sort of system in this country that has provided this interesting and in some ways troubling, you know, set of circumstances where we had a justice die less than 50 days out from an election. Like that poses questions that even if they're sort of rationally justified, it feels kind of weird that a lifetime appointment could be put in place by a president who within 50 days, the voters could reject outright. So I, I get like the discomfort. I just think that's a system that we that we have and I'm not sure alternate systems such as you know setting a age of retirement or you can only serve a certain number of, of years would be better I think our entire political system would then sort of form around these moments of retirements or or you know judges being sort of moved off the bench so the idea of four Republicans standing up was just never likely. The idea I put forward in the subject is a gang of eight senators that agree on a mutual list of acceptable nominees and commit to not voting for anyone who's not on that list under a Trump or Biden administration. The reason why this is important is that for Republicans to reject a Trump nominee 
they need to have some kind of backstop for their voters and frankly for their principles. You know, they, they need to be able to tell themselves and they need to be able to tell their voters that they have limited the Democrats in some way, especially because they they right now have all of the power to get exactly what they want. Now, the reason why Democrats would do this deal is A, Trump might not go for it. It would be putting Trump in a position of either putting forward a nominee that riles up his base but that is doomed to fail, or a nominee that Democrats like and therefore feels like a concession and weeks out from an election, you have key elements of Trump's base and key leaders that Trump depends on expressing disappointment that Trump didn't find a way to like stick it to the Democrats or whatever. If he was able to get a nominee through, Democrats would be able to say, look, the alternative here was Trump putting on a hard right conservative justice. Uh, and we prevented that, which isn't a great deal, but Republicans do kind of hold all the cards. Now, I know that there have been attempts to sort of give Democrats leverage back by suggesting that as soon as they take control, like if Trump moves forward in this way, when Democrats take control, they're basically going to negate everything Trump did. Uh, I would urge Democrats to be really careful about that approach especially given their nominee. And I think Joe Biden has approached this in precisely the right way. He has called for turning the temperature down. He has been cautious about calls for retribution. His focus has been on the good of the country, not on partisan squabbles. His critique of an eventual Trump nominee is on ACA, not a litany of sort of progressive policy goals and sort of where progressives sort of want to take the country, but like very on a bread and butter sort of policy issue that broad, you know, affects the country broadly, healthcare. I think the Biden campaign has done this exactly right. As this goes on, they're going to be more and more tempted and more and more called on to speak into the partisan fray. And I trust the folks running the Biden campaign just by what we've seen that they're going to be disciplined. I, I was holding my breath for the hours after this news dropped because I, I can only imagine the requests that were made of them and the advice that they were getting and the real concern that they must have from a policy perspective of if Trump is able to get this nominee. Like, it's really important that we don't wave away the fact that this is a very, like, this isn't a completely emotional battle that's like, uh, detached from reality, if Trump is able to put on another conservative justice within a pretty short time frame, the balance of the court will have been changed significantly in ways that have concrete impacts for people. If, if, if you don't think so, take a look at the Shelby decision. Whether you like the cases or not, take a look at what cases are coming up, including principally, again, consideration of the ACA. And this appointment is, is significant. The last bit of sort of advice I'd give, and I talk about this on the Church Politics Podcast, not only would it be political malpractice for Democrats to attack Amy Coney Barrett if she is the nominee on the basis of her faith. Her faith, frankly, should not be mentioned by Democrats at all unless they want to say something positive about it. Not only would it be political malpractice to six weeks out from the election, it would be political malpractice to make this fight about whoever Trump nominates and any aspect about them. 
that concedes far too much. The problem here is not with whatever no-name person that Trump nominates that no one in the country will have, that very few people in the country will have ever heard of before. The problem is that Trump has moved forward with this nomination in the first place, which is just a reconfirmation of the fact that this is a man who will divide the country for his own personal gain if it suits him. That's what the focus should be on. The focus should not be on trying to name and defame whoever Trump puts forward. Again, I think the Biden campaign has been on point. I don't know how many times Joe Biden and his folks need to show that their political instincts are far superior to so many other people in the Democratic Party before some of these folks just start taking his lead. But we'll see this play out. It's going to be a key shaper. I mean, in some ways, it's reminiscent of Comey four years ago. I mean, this is just a clearly identifiable bomb that has been dropped in the middle of this presidential election. And we're going to have to see what the impact is. All right. So here's the rest of this episode. We are going to talk with Samuel Kimbrell about sort of, I thought it was important to bring Sam on. He's a longtime conversation partner of mine, and I did just want to zoom out. Uh, here in Church Politics Podcast, on my Substack, my analysis has been very tactical, and that's been important. Like, it's important to think this is going to move very fast, so it's important to think about, like, how this is going to play out. I wanted to zoom out with Sam a bit. I really think you'll enjoy that conversation. And then after the conversation with Sam, we'll talk with Adam Serwer about the 2020 presidential election and also his most recent essay. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am just overjoyed to have with me my friend Samuel Kimbrell. Uh, he is a political philosopher living in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is part of an emerging generation of communitarian thinkers, and he writes on themes of solidarity, ideology, power, loneliness, and trust. He is author of a great book, Friendship as Sacred Knowing, Overcoming Isolation, and uh, holds an MPhil and PhD uh, degrees from the University of Cambridge. In addition to his academic roles, he consults widely for think tanks and other organizations seeking to bring philosophy more directly into public conversation. Couldn't be more thrilled to bring this conversation to you. Uh, here's Sam Kimbrell. Sam, thank you so much for joining the Faith 2020 podcast. Hey, Michael. It's great to see you. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, you, there are, uh, there's really no one I'd rather have this conversation with than you. And, you know, Sam, we could, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about, obviously, the impact that Justice Ginsburg's passing and yeah. uh, what will follow will have on uh, the next six weeks of this presidential campaign and its outcome to go out a little bit longer term or perhaps shorter term, depending on uh, how this plays out, uh, who will fill that seat on the Supreme Court. But what I want to discuss with you in this conversation is more of the, you know, this is something that everyone knew could happen and something that was conventional wisdom. If this happens, our politics may not be able to like hold up, like our society may not be able to hold up to a certain extent. Um, it's like having a nuclear weapon on a, on a trigger and everyone knows <laughs> that something could go wrong. Um, and so I'm interested in talking with you about what does that mean that our politics is so 
consciously vulnerable to these kinds of circumstances? Uh, and what does it, what would it look like for us to hold together as a society with such admittedly like a high stakes situation? I mean, I don't think progressives are out of line to think that who fills this seat could be consequential yeah, and significant for not just, you know, a year or two, but for decades. Yeah. And conservatives obviously feel the same way. Yeah. No, that's great. And, um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be on the podcast in part because uh, we have such an uh, interesting set of conversations in the in our own relationship. And I think being able to bring some of those um, into to bear on this specific conversation. So I think there's the feeling this this weekend and as the new week starts has been one very much of uh, institutional crisis. The word that people keep throwing around is legitimacy. Is this going to be a kind of uh, a, an actually crippling uh, national hi- sort of history event where the structure of the society is strained in a way that uh, we can't go back. And I, th- I would say that the question for me that's most interesting is not actually how the specific move uh, in the next uh, four or five, six weeks um, ends up working and playing out whether it's with Trump and McConnell or with the kinds of um, maneuvers that the Democrats are able to pull off. Um, it's also, I think, uh, the, the most interesting question is not exactly what the, the retaliatory moves are going to be in the, the next six months or year. All of those things are going to be significant. But the, the real issue is how did we get to a place where institutional decisions of this kind matter so much that the societal weight, what it, what it means to hold together, what are, what our identity is as a nation, can swing so easily on the death of one or two people in important positions. If our civil society and our political structures are at that point of strain, it's quite striking um, as a, as as a state of of, of a political community, and so. Um, I, th- I think trying to figure out what that broader situation is, is a far more important one. That's a far more important task than figuring out just what the immediate political maneuvers, maneuvers are going to be in the next six months. Do you think this talk of societal strain, do you think that's, that's real? Or do you think it's mostly political show? Do you think this is just a heated emotions funded by millions of dollars, but Actually, society's holding together, you know, just just fine, and and sort of talk about something like this actually affecting communities is sort of overspun. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a political philosopher, and our main kind of focus uh, tends to be uh, how do humans build communities. That's a way bigger question than just how um, how one specific political experiment has gone. And we're now a couple hundred years into a particular way of structuring a society. And there are all kinds of interesting features in the positive direction that have come out of that experiment. And we're now watching some of the strain lines on, on the other side. For me, the much more interesting question is, can human beings build communities coherently? And you can have a very cynical view of that. You can think actually humans mainly are just invested in being able to get their own interests in my side winning over your side. And sadly in history that, that has at times been a very real situation. 
On the other hand, the question of why is it that we do actually live and in, in sort of have habitat with one another so effectively over generations is a is another very striking anthropological fact. Once you get to that point where you say, actually, humans can build communities reasonably well, placing a political crisis like the one we are currently undergoing into that context gives you a kind of resource base that you wouldn't have if you're just trying to consider it in relation to the immediate history. You know, we're, we're in this situation now. Is there anything we can do in, in the midst of sort of the the immediate decisions that confront us. And and I'll say that, you know, is there anything political actors can do right now, the Senate, the president can do right now that would lead to a better sort of outcome? And then as citizens, is there something better we could be doing in this sort of immediate chain reaction of events that has been set off? Or is this like, do we need to let this sort of situation play out and mostly focus on sort of long-term uh, long-term thinking and planning uh, uh, and, and, and activity. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so, okay, so just one point about, about the long-term thing first. A lot of people kind of lament polarization as the basis of this crisis. In a certain way, I think we're in a situation where we're actually not polarized enough. Or alternative, an alternative way to say that is that we find ourselves unable to speak to the actual places where we are polarized. We end up playing out a lot of our dysfunction through um, situations and uh, decisions, actions, which are not actually the root of the conflict. We don't, we, we will talk a great deal about <laughs> abortion policy, um, about healthcare policy, but we don't talk about what we actually think human beings are. That's not something that really has a lot of traction in our public life. So the longer term roadmap that we need is one where we get much, much better at doing that. And that I think probably should happen actually at a less than official level, sort yeah. of civil society being able to figure out how to actually speak honestly, directly, frankly to, to what we actually care about. One thing that I think is very striking about Americans is that we have deep convictions and as people lament polarization, I think they often miss that one thing that's happening is that we are, our convictions are coming into public. And like, that's a really good thing. We care about things. We care about life that, um, you know, the, the protest chant, no, right. you know, no yeah. justice, no peace. Like this is in some ways a really important thing. We want to have a view of justice and a view of peace, having better venues where we can talk about the most fundamental things that we can't not, not care about in, in hmm. public really matters. On the short term, I think the issue is that we find a way to just cool things down. There, there are ways that political actors can choose a heat the room up versus a cool it down, uh, set, set of maneuvers. And if, if you can have this, this process of having our convictions spill out on a longer time scale, where we where we can talk about them more carefully and more deliberately, that 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 matters. I think a good deal in the ne in the next six weeks. What does it look like to build up some of the civic muscles that you're sort of referring to? What 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 does it look like to better prepare people to, to sort of know what's motivating them and be able to express that in a way that is um, not so mediated in my view by sort of intervening 
actors and forces that want to take those sorts of impulses and use them for their own ends. Yeah, that's good. I, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question. And it's one that we, we've had a lot of talk over the past years about civility and about compromise as the kinds of things that we need to get ourselves out of this moment. And I'm not sure that's right. It seems to me that those are uh, second order. Those are, those are good things that show up if you have a f- healthy community, but they're not the kind of things that can heal a community that's unhealthy. It seems to me that one thing that can happen is that you diminish the sense of threat in certain respects. If you, if you can pull back some of the feeling of acting out of fear, that, that's really significant. And you watched it over this weekend. Both sides are, are not actually reacting first because they have big constructive visions that they, they want to see realized in the country. It's first of all, because they're afraid that if the other side gets another seat on the court, it's going to be uh, incredibly damaging to them and to their own to their own li- lives. The, the right. way that they go about go about things. If you can get rid of that threat mechanism a little bit, that's good. And that does happen at a political level in certain ways. Um, it, I think it also should happen at a civil society level. Being able to have like sort of relatively confined venues where you can state your convictions well, develop those in a way that is really robust, and then gradually and w- much more quietly than we're doing bring those into conversation with opinions that are very different than yours. That Those kinds of contexts are very, very healthy. Yeah. You know, I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, H- Howard Thurman has this yeah. idea that, you know, hatred forms in a situation where you have what he called contact without fellowship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was writing this mm-hmm. in the mid, you know, 20th century, um, where there were certainly aspects of that going on. You could drive through a community that was not your own and get sort of the impression that you know who lives there without really having any sort of shared experience. Um, Obviously, I I just think that's accelerated by significant degrees of of orders of magnitude um, today. Uh, And I think that's, it's part of it. Political actors can make decisions and we'll be having an interview hopefully in the next week or so with Senator Mark Pryor, who's going to speak a, a bit to political actors, what they can do. Mark Pryor, as a bit of a preview of his interview, was also really clear, which was kind of refreshing to me as him being a, a former elected official, saying that even our most senior elected officials are so constrained by what the people expect and demand of them. Uh, and I, you get a sense that there's a lot of uh, uh, ideological contact, yeah. a, a sort of sense of what the other side will do if they get power. Yeah. Not a whole lot of empathy, not a whole lot of real, um, real understanding based on shared experience of what the other side's uh, aims are. And so maybe that's maybe that's a maybe that's a a piece of this <laughs> maybe some of the anxiety some of it is certainly based on real things <laughs> and again just yeah. to reiterate uh the justice who fills this seat is going to have decisions that are going to have real impact on yeah. people's lives yeah. not this isn't theory this isn't um yeah. people aren't being sort of uh emotional to think that this is a significant practical sort of tangible thing now on the other hand you do 
you do wonder how much of the animosity that is going to be ginned up uh, over the next six weeks is based on those practical, practical, tangible goods and how much of it is based in the fact that our politics runs off of this stuff for its own purposes. Look, so I think part of this is a question about what is, what is the territory that we're actually fighting over? So when we think about this, I think part of what's in the back of our minds often is that what matters about the society, what's, what is the public good? It does have to do with wealth, power, prestige, and who's able to control those things. Now, my view is that that's not actually what life is first of all about. The things that make life important and rich can get taken away by wealth, power, and prestige being used badly. But having wealth, power, and prestige does not give you the things that actually matter about life. Um, I was reading um, this uh, passage that Plato recounts about Socrates in prison uh, er- earlier this week. And uh, this very wealthy um, patron of Socrates comes and says, hey, I'm going to buy off all the guards and get you out. Your death sentence is coming down within the couple, next couple of days. Let's figure out how to how to um, use our wealth, power, and prestige to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. And Socrates cuts him off short, very, very short, in fact. And he says, um, what matters is not whether I continue to live, but what it means to live well. Hmm. It seems to me that the question for our society is that we've gotten threatened at the level, what does it mean to live, and have forgotten that the quality of life actually depends on figuring out the right answer to the question, what does it mean to live well? That involves actually intensifying our intuitions about justice, what's real, what's good, yes. and figuring out how to deal with those effectively rather than just fighting it out, fighting it out about um, these places where we feel threatened. Yeah. Uh, Sam, this is so much of the like, – because of the pace of this thing – it's going to be very hard for people to zoom out uh, and not just go from crisis to crisis, from sort of breaking news to breaking news yeah. sort of headline on this. I wanted to have you on because of my deep sense that, yes, the individual moves are really significant. I'll be paying as much attention to uh, who uh, President Trump announces as his pick uh, yeah, at some yeah. point this week as anybody else. Um, but we can't simply be moving from crisis to crisis. We need to build up the muscles. Those who are uh, speaking into these issues publicly, but I think just the citizens generally to not just be moving from crisis to crisis, yeah. but also to begin to wrap our minds around why we are moving from crisis to crisis, like why our experience. Yeah feels like that to us in this society and then make a decision about whether that's something we want to be the continued way of way of life. And if not, there are things we could do to, to change it. We don't have to live this way. I think that's great. And I think that there's a question of um, a society is building, you know, it's always building, building whatever it is. And the question of what, how large the building is that you end up living in is in some ways in, in our own hands. Now, it seems to me that we've decided to live in a pretty small building where what, what's, what's real, what matters to us, what our happiness depends on is what happens politically, who wins, 
whether we're able to acquire those goods, wealth, um, fame, fame, prestige. And, uh, it's not obvious that that is the best kind of building to live in. It's, it's not necessarily that you then end up getting into religious answers. There are ways that you can build out what life is for that isn't where you're not fixated on politics, but there are broader horizons. Sometimes the arts have provided visions like this. Sometimes, sometimes disciplines like philosophy have. Um, but it's also a religious question and being able to, um, pay attention to what reality is, what's, what's meaningful, what the substance of existence is beyond who wins politically. So sometimes, I mean, as the story of Socrates is describing, losing actually, um, at a political level does not defeat your capacity to be present to mm. what's actually good about life. And finding the capacity to, to, as he says, live well instead of just live seems to be a hugely significant thing. Sam, thank you so much for joining uh, this podcast. Hope to have you uh, back on, but appreciate you walking us through some of these really important questions. No, great pleasure, Michael. And I, uh, I find your uh, contributions to these debates always right, right at the, um, the, the very finest um, quality. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're in my house right now, so you have to That's... say those things. But uh, <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Sam. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sam. I think we need to understand from a higher level what's happening before you could really understand the tactics and, and sort of what's happening with discrete events. It's really important not to get lost in the minutiae and all the chess moves of how a situation like this unfolds and lose sight of sort of the umbrella in which it all falls under. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. hope you follow Sam's work. I'm sure we'll have him back on. Now I want to introduce Adam Serwer. Adam Serwer is, again, just uh, one of the most important voices, I think, in, in journalism today, certainly when it comes to uh, politics. Uh, he is a staff writer at The Atlantic where he covers politics. He's received awards from National Association of Black Journalists, The Root, Society of Professional Journalists. In 2019, he was named a Shorenstein Center Fellow. He is the man who wrote The Cruelty is the Point, uh, something that crossed political persuasions as obviously uh, sort of among those who do not approve of this president generally. Uh, but um that's a pretty sort of uh, a lot of different folks in that camp. And Adam Serwer's essay has sort of been widely hailed uh, there as sort of being top of the heap, uh, sort of having particular incisiveness when it comes to this administration from a, from a perspective that finds a lot of problems with the Trump administration. He wrote an essay called The New Reconstruction that I thought was important and worth discussing here for its relation to this presidential election, but also it's just a critical idea and set of ideas that I want to bring to you, uh, the audience. And so here's my conversation with Adam Serwer. Adam, welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I've been following your work for a long time and we've, we've uh, gotten to know each other a bit. You graciously uh, edited some of my work and uh, made me uh, look much better than I, than I am. Uh, so it's great to have you on for this conversation. There's so much that we could cover and we'll get a bit 
more specifically into the sort of presidential politics. But the main reason I wanted to have you on was you wrote an essay for the October issue of The Atlantic with the headline of The New Reconstruction. And I was struck by it for a number of reasons, but before sort of asking you uh, some more specific questions about it, I would love for you to just give an overview. You know, why did, why did you write it? Why was, why was now the time? Um, and, and actually, I'll just ask you, I, I was, I've been interested to see a sense of optimism from, uh, and a sense of potential from folks like yourself who usually, and I think you do in in this essay as well, give a really like sort of clear-eyed look at the history of racism in this country. And yet yet you also express this hope that uh, the U.S. has its best opportunity in 150 years to belatedly fulfill its promise as a multiracial democracy. Uh, Talk us uh, through that a bit. So what I, I, basically the idea is that a combination of factors, um, having Trump in office, someone who, you know, very prominently says racist things, um, the proliferation of, of cell phone videos showing, um, police mistreating black people and the work that activists like associated with Black Lives Matter has, have done has created a kind of, awakening around the issue of racism. And so Black Lives Matter's approval rating has actually declined some since I wrote this essay, which is like, uh, you know, it, it was filed in like early August. Um, but people, it, when you look at the polls, people are still, the, the idea that racism is a serious problem, uh, it, it, it's still like a, a big majority of Americans who agree with that. Um, and when you look at, at, when you actually look at the approval of Black Lives Matter, which is hovering in like the low 50s right now, that's actually a historically high approval for a black rights movement. When you actually go back contemporaneously and look at approval of the civil rights movement, I mean, maybe it's something like 40% of Americans approved of the marchers in Selma and the March on Washington. Um, most people said that these protests, the ones we think of as like the iconic civil rights protests led by people like Martin Luther King and John Lewis, they, people of most Americans at the time said that they were counterproductive to the cause of black rights. And we all know, you know, at, now we remember them quite differently. Um, so I think, uh, you know, partially people have been radicalized by what they've seen, by, by the president's behavior, by his policies, by the, you know, the, the invention of cell phone cameras has offered uh, people who are not black a, a really vivid window into how common these violent interactions between um, police and, and, and black people are and how, how, how much more frequent they are than I think a lot of people understood. Um, you know, I spoke to a, a former uh, Obama pollster, Cornell Belcher, who mentioned that, you know, in 2008, most white Americans in swing states actually thought um, anti-white racism was a much bigger problem. So this is this is sort of a tremendous um, sh- shift in public opinion as a, that happened as a result, partially of the George Floyd video, but but of course of all these like other precipitating events that contributed to it. Now, what history says is that these awakenings happen. You know, maybe once a century or so. There was one in in the 1860s, which is the one that I spent a lot of time on. There was one in the 1960s. Um, which again, you know, was more limited than we remember. And these moments are opportunities to do big things um, to advance the cause of racial justice. Uh, But what history also says is that there's usually a backlash and it's pretty complete. So if you want to change things, you have to act fairly quickly. 
Um, now, I don't know what's going to happen in November. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I, I, I describe what I think is we probably have an anti-racist majority in American history for the first for the first time in American history. I mean, I, I, I don't when you look at. Um, you know, even if you look at the the 1860s when Republic, radical Republicans, uh, you know, wrote the equality of man into the Constitution, um, you know, they were acting out of a sense of self interest. They understood the Re- the Republican Party was not viable in the South without black voters. And even the most progressive radical Republicans would say things like, you know, this is about political equality, not social equality. You know, th- th- if they had been, you know, one of the the common talking. points points at the time was that Democrats were saying, oh, they're going to let black people into your homes. They're going to put little black boys next to uh, it, little white girls in schools. And, and of course, that was very, you know, that talking point lasted for another hundred years. Um, but now I think there is, you know, and it doesn't mean that everybody agrees necessarily on the solutions to racism, but it does mean that people have uh, sort of have internalized anti-racism ideologically as like a facet of their political identity. Now, the reality is, is that the Electoral College, as it currently exists, privileges a more conservative white voter. Um, and it's one of the reasons Trump got elected despite, uh, you know, not winning a majority of the votes. And that means, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that because of this majority, um, you know, Biden is going to win in November and we're going to do a, a whole bunch of awesome things. I am saying that that majority exists. It's not clear to me that it can, can overcome Trump's structural advantages. But if it does, there's another problem, which is that, you know, so, some of the biggest problems at the root of what we're talking about with policing are economic disparities. It's, uh, you know, de facto segregation, things that will require, uh, you know, money to fix. And typically, you know, when when black rights movements come up, when they focus on civic rights like voting rights or non-discrimination, those things tend to be pretty popular. But when it comes to economic redistribution, you know, these coalitions tend to falter and break apart. And that happened in the 1860s. It happened in the 1960s. I mean, Martin Luther King has taught, you know, wrote an essay for the nation that I quoted about how taking on what he called entrenched financial privilege was going to be a much tougher fight than the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And that's, you know, that's historically been true. It'll be true even if Biden wins in November. Um, so, you know, there's a there's a lot of headwinds. Um, I, I, I would actually contest the idea that I'm optim- optimistic or pessimistic. I would say that I try to be as clear as possible about what's happening. Um, and sometimes the news is really depressing and sometimes it's a little more uplifting. And, and in this case, it just so happens that it's a little more uplifting than 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 usual. Yeah. No, I um. I've been struck with sort of a uh, we could talk about whether this has been accurate or not, but but a, a sort of progressive view of history, sort of the idea that human progress is sort of a story of a never ceasing sort of uphill climb is something that's been associated with progressive liberal thought. That's not the story you tell here, as you noted, but one of, you know, to use Barack Obama's language, you know, fits and starts. Uh, I, think, I think you tell a story about these brief sort of moments in history that offer significant change. When you think about a backlash, what do you think prompts that? Are there ways to extend the life of sort of the the, the moment of potential? Um, there was a Barna, Barna is a Christian polling agency. They came out with a survey this week um, that actually the head of Barna said he was really disheartened by that, that did show 
early signs of this this backlash uh, that actually more practicing uh, white Christians do not believe that there's systemic uh, racism in this country today than they did a year ago. Um, like a significant, I think a 20 plus point jump in that. So 40% of practicing white Christians do not believe there's systemic racism in, in the country. So yeah, what does it look like to extend the moment of of promise? And what role do you think, you know, Biden can play in that? Uh, you write here that acting quickly is imperative. Yeah, I mean, I do think acting quickly is really important. Um, and as you described, the backlash is already forming. That's something that uh, Black Lives Matter activists told me when I spoke to them was that they felt like, you know, they, they knew th- they, they know the backlash is coming and they're prepared for it. Um, you know, in, in a sense, Trump himself was a kind of backlash to Black Lives Matter. It wasn't just Black Lives Matter. It was Obama as well and a bunch of other things. But, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that Trump responded to the Ferguson uprising by saying, you know, Obama's the reason you have these riots. Um, you know, so this is, these stories are all connected and we're living in a time we are about as polarized as we were, uh, at the end of reconstruction. Um, so it's not surprising to me that people who, you know, uh, you know, both parties have very, have, have a section of the party that is very religiously observant in the democratic party. Black Christians are among the most church going people in the country and on the right, um, white Christian, there uh, there is a, are a large number of white church going Christians, um, and so when you those those two groups, by virtue of their experiences and by virtue of partisanship and a number of other factors, are going to have very different views on something like this. And I think when Trump goes around and says, you know, uh, systemic racism, I think in one case he actually said it was real, but also why should he should he care? Um, uh, you know, when when he is, you know, when when Trump signals to the people who support him that something is bad, they're going to think that it's bad. Um, and and I want to say again, look, these this progress happened, uh, you know, in eight in the eighteen sixties and in the nineteen sixties without like most white people being on board is the truth. I mean, this is something we don't really think about. We don't really like to think about, which is that. You know, if it if it act, I mean, like Martin Luther King had a very low approval rating when he was murdered. Um, you know, the, 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 what's unique about this moment, I think, is that uh, you know the country is diverse enough, um, and 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 a lot of white people have been radicalized by you know what they've seen in these uh, cell phone videos, what they've seen from Trump, the the, the fact that the country elected. Uh, a man who rose to political prominence with the slander that the first black president was not born in America. This has sort of awakened their eyes to this thing that they may not have thought was as real as they do now. Um, you know, so the existence of people who are strongly resistant to that racial progress is not a new thing. What's actually new is that there aren't quite as many of them as there used to be. Um, as I said, 50%, like over 50% approval for Black Lives Matter is an extremely high approval rating historically for a black rights movement. It, it, they usually don't, aren't that popular, um, at least not contemporaneously. In hindsight, of course, we all want to, you know, everybody, every political movement wants to uh, uh, hold that mantle. And that's, you know, it's, it's not historically accurate, but in some ways it's, it's a good thing because people are, uh, feel there, there is a kind of virtue and hypocrisy in the sense that, um, people, people wanting to show that they're good in a particular way, even if they're not good in that particular way, encourages other people to try and be good in that particular way. Yeah. Uh, so uh, speaking of in hindsight, you, you know, 
in in hindsight, it seems clear, like the obvious, you know, the obvious, you know, the obvious response in the 1860s was emancipation. The obvious response in the 1960s was uh, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Um, you spend a significant amount of time in the latter portion of the essay talking about the racial wealth gap. Is that the target that's worthy of of this moment, or you know, wh- where should policymakers be looking to capitalize on this potentially fleeting, you know, moment of potential? So I am not personally, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a policymaker. So I didn't want to, in, in the essay, I didn't want to like give a laundry list of things that could be done. But there are people who have spent a lot of time thinking about this, uh, uh, you know, people, economists like Derek Hamilton or Sandy Darity, who I spoke to for the piece, um, or Dorian Warren, you know, th- there, there are, and in particular, because the coronavirus has had such lopsided effects in terms of people who have been affected um, and people whose businesses have been affected. I talk about the fact that something like 40 percent of black businesses closed um, in April. Um, it's not clear how many of them have reopened or recovered. Some, uh, Many of them may be simply gone forever because of lack of access to capital or not getting the PPP money um, that went to businesses that have pre-established uh, relationships with uh, mainstream financial institutions. Um, I think that, you know, th- there's an issue here, which is that there's a big issue here, which is that we're not supposed to be race conscious in certain things. Obviously, there are there are there are legal leeways, um, legal loopholes for that. Um, but I think that if policymakers do not take into account both the cumulative effect of past discriminatory policies and the lopsided effect of the coronavirus, both the disease itself and the coronavirus recession, um, its lopsided impact on people of color, um, we're going to have a a, a very lopsided recovery and one that's not going to serve uh, most people. I mean, like we're already starting to see it right now, which is, you know, a a lot of upper middle class people and above have really sort of recovered from the coronavirus recession. And we've had an economy that has essentially been running on the consumption of the, you know, the top two quintiles of American wealth for a really long time now. And that has, you know, I mean, I, I think that's a significant contributor to our current political situation. And because the coronavirus is such a huge problem, and because it's not just a, a pandemic, it's also an economic problem, I think the Biden administration will have to do, and, and they've already talked about this, Biden has already, you know, in some speeches, he's reached back to, uh, you know, past reconstructions as inspiration, at least rhetorically. Um, you know, and he's also uh, said, you know, we're going to have to do something that's like New Deal sized. If they pursue this path and they do not take into account the things that I've just mentioned, um, we're going to have a lot more problems. Yeah. Adam, you talked about uh, a sort of a, a virtue in hypocrisy. The Republican convention's uh, approach to racial issues to black voters. Was there a kind of virtue and hypocrisy there? Or, or did you view it mostly as kind of a, a, a malicious mis- misdirection? Kind of uh, what's your to, to move a bit more towards presidential politics? What was your what was your take on on the Republican convention's approach to, to these issues, which, you know, the first night happened, and I thought, okay, like the, the this uh, looks like they decided to open up this way. And, and i frankly expected it to kind of fade out uh, in the remaining days of the convention uh, that they had kind of front loaded uh, uh, the people of color that they had to speak. But, um, you know, it, it, it continued through, throughout. What, what was your what was your take on that? Well, more than half the country thinks Trump is racist. 
Um, and you know, and that, that's just a, a, a matter of public opinion and data. Um, and, and a lot of his bleeding of support, um, is, has been from suburban areas, from, uh, college educated white people who are among the people who have been most, um, I, I would say who, who, who have been most affected by the, uh, the George Floyd protests and what they've seen over the past four years. Um, so I think that it was largely to staunch the bleeding among that group. But, and, you know, I think this is something that the de- Democrats have to keep in mind. There really is some data showing, um, you know, that a lot of softening of support among black and Latino men, particularly young black and Latino men. And it's something, you know, on the one hand, we are not getting out of this. We are not getting out of this whole situation in any long term sense without the Republican Party being integrated. On the other hand, you know, if you're the Democratic Party, you really have to think seriously uh, about delivering concrete benefits to those constituencies if you want to keep them reliably voting for you. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's that's right. Uh, we're we're almost running out of time. I, I do want to, you know, we have less than seven weeks in, in this campaign. Should. It both sounds like extremely short and like a like an eternity, right? It's both. Oh, it's, yes. it's, it's both the longest period and shortest period. Uh, the, you know, we had those two town halls this week. Uh, President Trump's on ABC, uh, and then Biden's last night. And, and yeah, I just I, I just thought this is this is going to be a, a, a long uh, and short seven weeks. What should folks be looking for? Do you think that there will be? You know, it seems to me like, although maybe it was just such a fire hose that my senses have been dulled, you know, it seems like the Trump campaign, I'm not sure if the Trump campaign has another iteration of its law and order sort of push, quote unquote, law and order push, or if they've they've decided that's not making the headway that they they need to make. Um, What kind of flashpoints uh, do do you think we should look for over the next seven weeks? Well, um, I think, you know, Obviously, the biggest one, I suppose, if you're, you know, if you want to torture yourself is Florida. I mean, I think, you know, most polling experts say that Florida, you know, what happens in Florida is the difference between, you know, whether we know who wins on an election night or whether we have a few days of vote counting in which the president will try attempt very hard to undermine confidence in the vote count if he thinks he's going to lose. Um, You know, I think. It's hard to know, right? Because it, it certainly seems like Trump defied the odds in 2016. So I think everybody, uh, you know, uh, liberals are very anxious about looking at the data and saying, well, it does look like Biden's going to win. Um, so, you know, a, a, again, I, I'm one of those people who after, you know, 2016, I'm just like, I'm not going to make predictions about what might happen. Um, you know, but I, I, I do think that Trump's Trump's law and order argument is not magic. I think like, the, you know, because of 2016, people just think that like racism is magic. But just because some people may find a racist argument appealing um, in a particular context, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to vote on that basis. There may be other competing interests that overwhelm that particular argument. And, and, and you could see this with Barack Obama in particular, where he won the votes of a lot of racially conservative whites for one reason or another. Perhaps it was just because they didn't think of Obama as being black, like the people that like the black people that they don't like. I mean, he, he, his, 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 campaign did emphasize 
his Kansan roots and stuff like that. So they're, they, they, you know, just because that's a, a factor in people's decisions. We didn't make that mean, up, Adam. I mean, that's no, a real, that's that's but a it real was thing. like emphasized. <laughs> it was emphasized in the public pitch for Barack Obama. I mean, no, I am also, I am also a, a biracial man. I understand how this stuff works. Um, but, you know, like I think, you know, just because people are sometimes that those arguments sometimes appeal to people doesn't mean that they always make decisions based on those arguments. And I think when you look at 2018, Trump really pulled out all the stops with the caravan and sending the army to the border and all that stuff. And it didn't work, you know, so it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's it, uh, that kind of campaigning can be effective, but it's not magic. And I don't know whether it's going to work this time, but I will say that it's absolutely not a certainty that it's going to work this time. Yeah. I've been impressed with the level of gender dynamics, how the Biden Harris dynamic is, is working. I, I felt in 2016 that there was sort of a, it was overhandled the the Clinton Kane dynamic that they they were like a little um, too conscious of sort of you know undergraduate level analysis of what was going on that that really made it an uncomfortable relationship. I I, I think presentationally on the gender level it's it's been pretty incredible. Uh, uh, they seem to be just presenting Biden and Harris as like two professional people who, you know, can get the job done, which I think is the right thing to do and not like overloading it with uh, a whole bunch of meaning. Do you do you think the Biden Harris ticket is working on that level? And, and just in general, do you think that that could be a, uh, you know, a promising like governing and political partnership? Um, especially as we think about Biden referring to himself as a transition president and that kind of thing? Um, you know, I think it is working. And I think w- one of the reasons we know it's working is that G. Elliott Morris, who does uh, political data for The Economist, he he made a chart yesterday showing that voters with high levels of sexism um, have voted, have switched from voting to Trump to Biden in, in pretty high numbers, um, which means that, you know, having, I mean, in some sense, having a man at the top of the ticket uh, has brought some of those voters back. Um, which, you know, is an uncomfortable reality we should really be upfront about. Um, but they haven't, they obviously, for whatever reason, maybe because she's not at the top of the ticket, they haven't been turned off by Harris. So whatever, I mean, I think the Biden campaign, you know, it, it's hard to say what what's due to external factors or what's due to campaign competence. Um, but, you know, the Biden campaign certainly appears to be winning at the moment. And I will say this for them. They, um you know, there were a lot of perceptions about what was going to happen in the Democratic primary that were rooted in things that reporters were seeing on social media that didn't bear out. And Biden had perhaps the least support of any of the Democratic candidates I ever saw on social media, but he had a tremendous amount of actual support in the real world. Um, And there's a way in which the Biden campaign has been very, they, they seem to have been very smart about keeping their eye on the prize and not being distracted by what commentators think is going to work and just focusing on what, what they think is going to work. And that seems to have worked for them so far. Um, you know, they won, they, they won the primary, they won it handily. Um, you know, so who knows, maybe they're, they know something that we don't. And, you know, I I can't really say again, who knows what's going to happen. Um, but they, I think the Biden campaign, has proven itself, at least in the primary, to be more com- a lot more competent than people expected. Yeah. 
Hey, Adam, can't thank you enough for joining. Uh, would again urge people to read uh, Adam's essay for the October issue uh, of the Atlantic magazine, The New Reconstruction, and uh, and his analysis. Uh, th- there have been few writers who have sort of uh, defined the contours of the way this presidential election and the Trump administration have been perceived and talked about than you, than you Adam. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for your work. And I Thank you. That's it. very kind of you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to Adam for joining the show. Thanks to Sam and Kimbriel for joining the show. This has been a longer one, but we're only six weeks out. Uh, by the time you hear this, less than six weeks out from the election, I thought it was worthwhile to try and pack in uh, all of this good stuff into this episode. Uh, would urge you, you know, if you get something out of this podcast, if you leave a review on iTunes, if you want to hear more from me throughout the week, sign up at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And I'm so grateful for you. Uh, listener, I can't believe we're almost to the presidential election Um you know, we started this a while ago, and it's, uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, having a conversation with me. All right, this is Michael Weir. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. Talk to you soon.